Welcome to The War Room with David Orton, a commentary on the culture war. The Biden presidency, in tandem with the global elites and the COVID-19 pandemic's convenient segue into the World Economic Forum's Great Reset of 2021, represents cultural Marxism's usurpation of the West's institutions, of its legislatures, courts, universities, media and corporate boardrooms. The lead time of God's mercy has expired. So, how must the Church respond to this and how will she navigate the new cultural and political terrain, not just to survive but to prosper? The Great Reset, charting the way forward, provides the answer, outlining five resets that the Church must undergo to equip her to be both the demonstration and proclamation of God's government to the world. Only then will the nations discover the biblical blueprints for their dilemmas. To order your print copy of The Great Reset, Charting the Way Forward, visit www.lifemessenger.org and click on the Publications tab. The five resets are 1. Partisan politics for the politics of the kingdom. 2. The myth of neutrality for a cultural gospel. 3. Experientialism and false prophecy for the scriptures. 4. Tribalism and sectarianism for apostolic unity. And 5. Eschatologies of defeat for Christ's victory in history. These resets cover five major biblical paradigms. One, the kingdom. Two, the gospel. Three, the spirit-word balance. Four, unity. And five, victory. In the last podcast, we considered the first and second reset touching on the kingdom and the gospel. Partisan politics for the politics of the kingdom and the myth of neutrality for a cultural gospel. In this podcast, we explore the third reset touching on the spirit word balance, the reset of experientialism and false prophecy for the scriptures. This is not to deny the subjective experience of the living God, the biblical exercise of the charismata or the ministry of the prophet. But it is to discern between this and absolutizing subjective experience above God and thus false dependence on prophets and prophecy. And this must also include absolutizing experiential phenomena, whether genuine manifestations of the Spirit or not. These are particularly the sins of the charismatic stream of the Church. Having refused a corrective word during the 1960s to right through to the 80s through ministries such as Derek Prince, Bob Mumford, Ernie Baxter and Charles Simpson, in broad brush strokes the renewal has now gone to seed being trodden underfoot of men by impostors and the immature who prophesy from their own spirit. And so thus says the Lord God, 
Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Ezekiel 13.3. This has been dramatically exposed in the recent US election and demands accountability and repentance. Tellingly, Pat Robinson, founder of CBN, who was instrumental in the rejection of the corrective word through Bob Mumford and Ern Baxter in the 1970s and 80s, has been one of the more strident voices prophesying a Trump second-term victory. Too many out of their own spirits have falsely prophesied an outcome that has not transpired. Whether the electoral outcome is fraudulent or not for the moment is beside the point. Peter's words must be heeded, and I read from 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These words of Peter are bookended by his own supernatural experience as an eyewitness of the majesty on one end and the problem of false prophets and teachers on the other. What Peter claims here is momentous. He is saying that the prophetic word of Scripture is even more sure than his own experience of the Lord at the Mount of Transfiguration. The ministry and life of the incarnate Son of God, as sure as that is, is made even more sure by the Scriptures. This is a weighty claim that must be taken to heart by the renewal stream. Our subjective experience of God must yield to the authority of Scripture, to sound theology and doctrine. In a time of judgment upon God's people, Isaiah commands them not to fear conspiracy, but rather to fear the Lord. They are to return from the occult prognosticators to the law and the testimony. And I read from Isaiah 11, uh, rather 8, verses 11 through, through 20. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord, who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him.
Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel, from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. What some call conspiracy, God calls judgment. So in the face of the Assyrian onslaught, the battle cry of God's people ought to be to the law and the testimony, not to the soothsayers and diviners. Rather, they are to bind up the testimony and seal the law among his disciples. God's law word is the touchstone of the prophetic. Every true prophet of God will call the people of God back to the law of the covenant. This is why Paul, in a prophetic spirit, declares that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. This means that the entire corpus of Scripture, especially the laws and ordinances of the Old Testament, are for us today. Not as a means of justification as the Judaizers, but rather sanctification as a charter for life, not only for the individual Christian but also for society. This is the reformer's traditional first use of the law and it must logically include the judicial and civil law as the application of the Ten Commandments which are merely the summary statement of the entire law. Like Moses, Jesus also provides a summary statement when asked as to the greatest commandment, he renews the law by rehearsing the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, reading from the Gospel of Mark and reading from uh, chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. When asked the, the greatest commandment, Jesus answered, the most important is here. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. This, There is no other commandment greater than these. The entire law of God is encompassed in this renewal of Jesus. And so the New Testament people of God as a royal priesthood and holy nation can now make known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, Ephesians 3.10, echoing Deuteronomy 4, 5 and 6. See, I have taught you, Moses says, statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. And please hear this in the sight of the peoples or the nations, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. 
The charismatic church must therefore, without forsaking the exercise of the charismata, repent of its unbiblical reliance on prophets and prophecy, whether false or otherwise, and return to biblical expository preaching and to sola scriptura. Not to mention the personality cults, the idolatry of phenomenon and monetizing of the gospel that is so dominant in that stream. Furthermore, she must teach and apply the biblical disciplines for the exercise of the charismata as taught by Paul. This must include the communicate, or rather the excommunication of false prophets and teachers when necessary. As a result, both the renewal and reform streams must do business with not only the true ministry of the Holy Spirit, but also that of true apostles and prophets in particular. For the reform, this will mean honouring sola scriptura above human reason. Cessationism rejects the plain meaning of the text by imposing an extra-biblical semi-dispensational frame over God's Word, arguing that the gifts and ministries of the Spirit were exclusively for the apostolic era so as to confirm the canon. The gifts and ministries of the Spirit are not for us today. However, this flies in the face of Scripture. It is embarrassingly devoid of any such statement, explicit or implicit. To the contrary, what is explicit is that the gift of prophecy, for example, is not for the confirmation of the canon, but rather the church's edification, exhortation and comfort, 1 Corinthians 14.3. The cessationist must therefore claim that the church no longer has this need. Really? It doesn't need comfort from God? It is also falsified by the fact that not all first century apostles were canonical writers, also falsifying the cessation of the apostolic ministry, which I'll address momentarily. Although this is not to deny the unique scripture-writing role of some first-century apostles. Furthermore, the cessationist accusation that prophecy subsequent to the canon implies an illicit continuity of equal authority from the Old Testament and apostolic eras into the entire New Testament era denies not only the continuity of the covenant, but also progressive revelation. Hebrews underscores the seriousness of rejecting a greater covenant with greater promises. I read from Hebrews 2, 2-4, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, this is the message through Moses, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation, so the salvation now coming through the greater than Moses, Jesus, is bringing God's people under a greater expectation, a greater judgment. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that is in Christ? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. 
while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, rather than a decrease of revelation, authority and power, there is an increase because revelation is progressive from one covenant to another. There's an increase of light and revelation to God's people. And so when the apostles went forth preaching, the Lord worked with them, confirming the word with signs following, Mark 16.20. Although the reason we don't see this manifestation of God's power confirming the word more today is because of the rationalism and unbelief of the Western church and culture. Even Jesus was hindered from doing many mighty works because of unbelief, Matthew 15, 38. Nonetheless, in the New Testament, there is an increase for God's prophets, although accompanied by a concomitant accountability. The gifts and operations of the Spirit are given precisely to underscore not only the increase of revelation and glory under a greater covenant, but also the increase of judgment. There is a higher standard for the New Testament prophet. Greater light, greater judgment. This greater judgment is reflected in the Pauline directive to judge prophecy, that is to weigh, to evaluate it, 1 Corinthians 14.29 and 1 Thessalonians 5.20. Nevertheless, compared to the canonical prophets and the archetypal prophets Moses and Elijah, the New Testament prophet is not on the same level, yet there is a clear continuity to the function from Old Testament to New Testament of the prophet as God's covenant enforcer. For example, the apostle prophet John um, function as both. See Revelation 2.5 and 22.9. The prophet is God's attorney prosecuting his covenant lawsuit not only against his people but also against kings and nations and thus the ministry of John the Revelator. While the prophet may exercise a gift of prophecy, words of knowledge or words of wisdom according to 1 Corinthians 12, the burden of the prophet, the ministry of the prophet, is to call God's people back to covenant fidelity to his law word. They are thus not prognosticators or soothsayers. It is crucial to note here the distinction between two levels of the prophetic, the gift of prophecy, 1 Corinthians 12, and the ministry of the prophet, Ephesians 4. They are vastly different in grace and authority. The former is purely for edification, exhortation and comfort, while the latter is a word ministry that includes correction and rebuke. So, rather than merely equal authority with the Old Testament prophet, with the increase of revelation and glory, the New Testament prophet speaks with a greater authority. As God's representative, they too declare, Thus says the Lord. This assumes, of course, they remain true to the law and the testimony as already mentioned. Additionally, the cessationist claim upon 1 Corinthians 13.10, an old chestnut, 
But when the perfect comes, the partial will the partial will pass away, is exegetically untenable. Rather than the canon, as they claim, the perfect telos refers to the consummation. See Calvin's commentary. Rather than a cessationist text, this is a continuationist one. Paul states the precise opposite to cessationism, that the gifts continue from the first century through to the consummation. It is then, Paul says, we shall see the Lord face to face, no longer knowing partially, but fully, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. In other words, at that point, at the consummation, gifts will cease because they are no longer needed. Nor can the day of Pentecost, here's another old chestnut, be claimed exclusively as a once-for-all event. The outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost not only signals redemption accomplished once for all, but also redemption applied. It is thus not only the inauguration of Christ's kingdom, but also its continuation through to consummation at the second advent. From Pentecost onward, the gifts and ministries of the Spirit are therefore integral to the kingdom of God's progress in history. The kingdom is hence a dispensation of the Spirit, as Paul underlines to the Romans. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. Minimal Holy Spirit, minimal kingdom progress. A lesson here, one would think. Any argument that leads us to brazenly reject the word of God, which commands us negatively, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, and positively pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, should strike us with the fear of God. The strict cessationist position is one of unbelief and rebellion against God and his word. One thing that has not ceased, our need for repentance, a radical change of mind. For the sake of the kingdom of God, it is time for the re reformed world to repent of the limitation they have placed on the omnipotent spirit of God. For the renewal, it will mean honouring sola scriptura above prophetic revelation. I've already dealt with this previously. Both streams, though, fall foul of a crucial hermeneutical principle, holding truth in balanced tension. This comes into play in the handling of seeming opposites, of paradoxes, in Scripture, we violate this principle to our own peril. For then we fall into errors of emphasis, as distinct from doctrinal creedal errors. The reform, by rejecting the plain meaning of the text, fall foul of a rationalistic position, ironically leading to irrationalistic arguments to explain away the text. It makes nonsense of the Word of God and is hence anti-sola scriptura. Men's arguments trump the Word of God and deny his power. If, however, the Word of God is accepted at face value, 
we can then work out what ceases and what continues. This means that cessationism and continuationism are not antithetical, but rather a continuum or a spectrum. Regardless of one's present position, whether accurate or not, it will be a mix of both. For example, the strict cessationist does not deny the continuing role of the Holy Spirit in guidance, whether personal or corporate, or that John Knox, for example, was popularly considered the Apostle to Scotland, and so on. Or the strict continuationist will not deny that canonical writing has ceased. However, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. It is imperative, therefore, to find the true balance in light of Scripture in this regard. There is a biblically balanced location on the continuum. Put very simply, the canon has ceased, the ministry of the Spirit continues. Once this is settled biblically, we can still err in emphasis practically one way or another at any point in time. We must learn in our experience the balanced tension between word and spirit. It has been well said, all word you dry up, all spirit you blow up. In closing, a, a comment must be made concerning the foundational ministries of apostles and prophets. Again, using the reformational principle of the plain meaning of the text and sola scriptura, thus prohibiting any arbitrary dispensational framework imposed over the text, these ministries have clearly continued throughout the history of the Christian movement, though not always explicitly recognised at the time. Nonetheless, the biblical function of each can be traced within history. The five ascension gift ministries of Ephesians 4.11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, have clearly been given by Christ to his church for a specific time frame. And I read from Ephesians 4.13, um, previously in verse 11, he's just listed the five ascension gift ministries to the church. And he says these are in operation, and I read, from Paul, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How much clearer can Scripture be? These ascension gifts to the church continue until she attains the full stature of Christ, maturity. And clearly, we are not there yet. To reject any one of these ministries is to retard the body of Christ's maturation process. Ephesians 2.20 Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, can be understood from the original Greek to mean either the foundation which the apostles and prophets lay or themselves as constituting the foundation. Both of these suit not only the first century apostles laying the once for all canonical foundation, that is, the scriptures, but also continuing apostles. 
present-day apostles, while constituting the foundation, must lay the once-for-all foundation of the Scriptures. Even so, the latter sense of constituting the foundation, that is, apostles and prophets being the foundation in the church, is more natural in light of Ephesians 3, 5, which attributes the revelation of the mystery to the then-present apostles and prophets. Additionally, 1 Corinthians 12.28, that God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers indicates their foundational nature. And Ephesians 4.7-11 shows that while they have received gifts from Christ individually, they are themselves sent by Christ as gifts to his church corporately. There's nowhere in the biblical text that says that God has stopped sending apostles and prophets to his corporate people. And so they are themselves, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, are themselves sent by Christ as gifts to his church corporately. The context of Ephesians 2.20 also confirms that the prophets Paul refers to are not Old Testament but rather New Testament prophets. Both 1st century, Ephesians 3.5, and present day, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, where that word until, they remain until the church approximates maturity in history. Furthermore, and please take note of this, the temple is a growing one, chapter 2, 21 of Ephesians, and it is being built together. The next verse, 2.22. So a growing temple. And so both the foundation and the infrastructure are growing together. And the, the tense of growing and building in these two verses, 2.21 and 2.22, is present, active, indicative, showing that the whole structure is in process, not a once-for-all completion. The foundation of apostles and prophets is therefore still growing as a present reality. God is still sending apostles and prophets to his church, as Ephesians 4 also shows, through all five ascension gift ministries, the body of Christ is still growing toward historical maturity. Classical Pentecostals must reevaluate, therefore, their historic semi cessationist rejection of apostles and prophets. For example, the Assembly of God's official rejection in 1949. Integral to the mid 20th century renewal and revival movements, the foundational ministry of apostles and prophets has been the subject of re emphasis and functional restoration, although with varying degrees of health and biblical accuracy. There is much ground to cover in this regard before the restoration is universally adopted across the larger body of Christ. Clearly this demands a reformation of the church and complete recovery of apostolic ecclesiology. Our inherited 
pasta-centered structures continue to hinder this process, not to mention the maturity of the body and a kingdom orientation. Nevertheless, there is, there is no reason not to build prototype expressions, not only for the optimal functioning of the body of Christ now, but also to prepare for future generations. In the next and last episode of The Great Reset, we'll consider the fourth and fifth resets. Fourth, tribalism and sectarianism for apostolic unity. And five, eschatologies of defeat for Christ's victory in history. Don't forget to order your print copy of The Great Reset, Charting the Way Forward, visit www.lifemessenger.org and click on the Publications tab. You have been listening to The War Room with David Orton. For more, visit www.lifemessenger.org.